Hi, Gwen Radford here. I'm currently putting the finishing touches on season three of This Sound Serious, but I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from Kelly and Kelly, the company that produces our show. It's called Record Club, and it's a live storytelling podcast that celebrates one classic album each week and explores how that album affected the lives of those who loved it. Each episode features storytellers sharing true personal stories about how a particular record shaped them. The first episode is all about Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, an album that is 25 years old this year. We'd like to share that episode with you now, and hopefully this series can fill the void while we prepare this next season of This Sounds Serious. Welcome to Record Club. This is Record Club, the podcast where people tell personal stories about how seminal albums impacted their lives. Because right now we're talking about David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust on the Spiders from Mars. Can I hear an amen? They were like, hey, you want to do this record club? I'm like, okay, which record is it? And they're like, Janet Jackson Control. I'm like, yes, honey, I'm there. It's 1977, and I'm 12 years old, and we're dancing to the Rumors album. We've got it cranked right up. My name is Louise Burns. I'm a musician, producer, and your host. And on this show, you're going to hear stories in front of audiences from our Record Club nights. At these musical gatherings, we pick one classic album and invite storytellers to share their tales of how that album intersected with their lives. You're not going to hear deep critiques or musical dissections, just honest stories from passionate music fans told live. Yes, live. Remember what that was like to be in the same room as other people having a shared experience? We recorded this series in the before times, long before COVID. However, we were sitting on it, waiting for the right time to release. And oddly enough, now feels the most fitting, with the future of small musical gigs and intimate storytelling nights being uncertain. We thought we would release this show to rekindle that feeling of attending a live event while we wait this thing out. For the premiere episode of Record Club, we are telling stories about an album that's celebrating its 25th anniversary. It was even going to be toured across North America this summer, but like so many other tours, it had to be put on hold due to the pandemic. Your Record Club album this week is Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. Jagged Little Pill is the breakthrough album that pole vaulted Alanis Morissette from mid-tier pop idol in Canada to international alt-rock superstar. She won over new fans with grunge-inspired sounds and made a place for herself on the record shelves of teens of the 90s with lyrics about self-discovery, coming of age, and infatuation. Infatuation. That's a feeling our first storyteller is no stranger to. Back in junior high, Aaron Westendorf knew the sting of being head over feet all too well. So, in in September 1996, I was 11 years old and I was starting grade 7. On the first day of school, I developed a disastrous, like, horrible crush on the new boy in my class. His name was Nick and he was totally different than anyone I'd ever met before. He was from New Zealand. So he was like, <laughs> he was like athletic, but not a jock. He was trendy. He was confident. He, he was just like 
the coolest guy, and I was essentially a gremlin. Like, <laughs> I didn't have a good grasp on, like, hygiene. And <laughs> my hobbies were, like, writing Hanson fan fiction. And <laughs> we weren't exactly on the level playing field. But um, my locker was right beside Nick's, so I had at least seven chances every day to talk to him. And after a few weeks, we weren't really any closer together. So I thought, oh, I'll invite him to my birthday party. And so um, I said, like, hey, Nick, my mom rented out the swimming pool. <laughs> Do you want to come to my party? And he didn't say yes, but he also didn't say no. So I just, you know, at the, at the party, like, me and my three friends are, like, doggy paddling around. And I thought, like, I kept an eye on the change room. Like, he's for sure going to show up. Okay, well, oh, he's late. He lives just across the street. He'll be here. He'll be here. Okay, well, later on, oh, his dad's a pastor. Maybe he's not allowed to hang out with girls. So, of course, he never showed up. But I didn't take that as, like, he's not interested. I was just like, oh, he couldn't come. So, um, whatever. For my birthday, my aunt got me a copy of Jagged Little Pill. And, of course, I knew about Alanis Morissette before. But in this album, I was, like, so, I was, like, knee-deep. You know, she was, like, so intense and raw and emotional. And that's how I was feeling. Like, you know, I'm, like, 12 years old. I'm all ripped up inside. There's lyrics like, wine dine 69 me. And I don't know what it means. But I'm pretty sure if someone explained it to me, I could relate. You know? <laughs> you know, like, I was, like, so in love with it. And I really wanted to show people at school, hey, I'm cool. I don't like, like, I like cool music too, guys. But... You know, we don't have Tumblr then. There's no social media. What do you do? Like, I don't know. Well, some kids put up album art in their lockers. I wasn't going to do that. I know. I'll put the lyrics from one of the songs in my locker. So I didn't handwrite it. I, like, typed it up. And I didn't... Yeah. <laughs> I didn't just type it up. It's not 12-point Black Times New Roman. It was 6-point Yellow Lucida handwriting, which, <laughs> which is, like, you can't even read that. And... <laughs> And as I'm hanging it in my locker, I'm like, Nick will see this and know how cool I am. He's going to talk to me. We are going to get together. That did not happen. Um, so throughout the school year, maybe based on certain events like Nick and I dance together in gym class, I'll put head over feet. Oh, I feel burned because he has like a grade nine girlfriend. I'll put right through you or something. And it never worked. So I thought, oh, it's not the method of communication that's the problem. It's the way I'm displaying it. Instead of Lucida handwriting, I should use wingdings. Like, <laughs> so it's like the year was, uh, I was like rotating through the songs on Jagged Little Pill, typing it up and posting it in my locker. Oh, it's going to be pink. Oh, pink will get him. Oh, green, green letters, that'll do it. Like I even literally wrote it in Greek script and thought that he would see this and be like, wow, you're so interesting, tell me more. Okay, of course that never happened. At the end of the year, we probably never said more than like five words together. So um, at the end of the year, he moved away and I never saw him again until I snooped on him on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's just a regular guy. He has, like, a really private profile. <laughs> so, now, seeing him, I don't even think that if I was, like, to walk by him on the street, I don't even think I'd be like, damn. I would just be like, oh, there's a guy. He's just, like, a totally regular person who doesn't seem that, like, trendy and alternative and whatever. He just seems like a guy. And so, uh, like, that, that's 
cool, you know, my memory, he's still like the pinnacle of like grade seven achievement. Um, and then looking back on that, it was like, I was such a fool. I was like, you know, I was in that like first love, like, oh, colors are brighter. The world is like sweet around me. But it was actually like limerence, which is like an obsessive, psychotic form of love where you like create these elaborate fantasies. If Nick sees this lyric written in wingdings and then he knows, then he'll ask me, Aaron, what does this mean? And then we'll fall in love. Like that, that's not love. That's like, that's like just straight up being nuts. And <laughs> I wish I could say that this experience, like trying to show my heart through Alanis Morissette lyrics was the only time in my life that I was absolutely insane because of love, but it was just the first time. <laughs> What do you know about Alanis Morissette's roots? Sure, everyone knows she dated Uncle Joey from Full House and that she's Canadian, but I'm talking the real stuff here. Stuff so real that Jagged Little Pill probably never would have happened had it not been for her experiences. In 1991, Alanis Morissette made her musical debut with a pure pop record simply titled Alanis. It was dance pop at its most 90s, featuring the big hair, big snare sound of the era, with every song co-written by Alanis and her producer, Leslie Howe. MCA had also put the pressure on her to lose weight in order to help sales, something I myself have experienced in the music industry, but I'll get into that later. It went platinum in Canada thanks to a major push from MCA Records and a hyper-sexed-up image that left her disconnected with herself. Her next album was a flop, and she found herself living at home with her parents in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. The story often ends this way for child stars, but not for Alanis. She moved to Los Angeles and met producer Glenn Ballard and soon found herself rising like a phoenix in the studio, making what would become one of the most successful albums of all time. The pain and experience of her youth spent in the depths of the Canadian pop music industry had left her bruised, fragile and angry. Not to mention more personal experiences with both bulimia and anorexia, which she developed as a coping mechanism when she felt her life was being controlled by 50-year-old men. Imagine being a teenager, in the public eye, not knowing who you were yet, and having these men telling you what to do, what to wear, and what to eat. In 2001, my childhood band Lilix, a band we'd started at the tender age of 11 to 14 respectively, had by some miracle landed a record deal with Maverick Records, the same label Jagged Little Pill was released on six years prior. Using what we used to jokingly call Alanis money, our lives were forever changed, moving to Los Angeles, working with the hot producers and writers of the moment, including Glenn Ballard, who produced Jagged Little Pill. We even made our debut stateside performance opening for Alanis at the Bowery Ballroom in New York City. My entire career is interwoven with Alanis Morissette, who is my first cassette tape, my first record deal, and my first ever New York performance. 
Maverick, our record label, had even given us the same ultimatum that Alanis had heard when she was just starting out. Lose weight or we won't promote your record. It was the kind of thing you can't quite process until you hear about other people going through the same thing. Who would demand a teenager lose weight for the sake of album sales? Well, the same kind of person who put 17-year-old Alanis in a bikini top and jeans. She is a survivor of the madness this industry thrives on, and for that, she is iconic. I don't think my experience is special. The thing with this record is that everyone has a little bit of history tied into it, especially young women who came of age around the same time as its release. That's the power of Jagged Little Pill. It's ingrained in our experiences as women of the 90s and beyond. It runs through our veins, and while we all know the song Ironic is in fact grammatically incorrect, we all feel connected to it because it was there just for us as we approached the new millennium with a greater understanding of ourselves and what it meant to be a 20th century woman. Yes, having your first album released on the same label as Alanis is pretty special. But imagine actually growing up with her. Our next storyteller, Adam Reed, did just that. So there I was, I'm just going to jump in. I'm 29 years old. I'm in a zippy Ford Focus rental, wending my way through the lush streets of a posh Hollywood neighborhood with my 75-year-old granny riding shotgun and my future wife, Kristen, in the back seat with her then husband. And we're on our way. <laughs> it's a good setup. Eh? <laughs> and we're on our way to a party, but we're not just going to any party. We're going to Alanis Morissette's house. I find her house, park the Focus down the street, way down the street. And we stroll up to Alanis's substantial, uh, yet tasteful, beautiful home. Uh, the scent of blooming jasmine, you know, fills the air. And I have in my possession three things, a decent bottle of Pinot Noir, a small bag of gourmet chocolate chip cookies, two things I was sure I needed to bring to Alanis's party, and a mysterious unmarked manila envelope uh, that I wasn't so sure I should bring. In fact, I knew deep down I should have left the envelope in the car. So we got to the door, we're greeted by one of Alanis's friends, and we're invited in, and it's a huge open concept living space backing onto a pool. It's an inviting room full of what feels like young, unpretentious people, probably most of your friends, peppered with a few big-name actors, like David Duchovny and <laughs> Gary Shandling were there. They really seem to stick out. Um, and we're escorted to the kitchen where Alanis is hanging out, and I bring the wine and the cookies with me, but I subtly deposit the envelope on the vestibule at the entrance before we go, hoping that somehow, maybe, it will disappear while I'm away. And so I'm, I'm, I'm giddy with excitement. I haven't seen Alanis in about eight years since um, before she left to L.A. to write and record Jagged Little Pill. And as we cross through the living room, I see Jim Carrey chatting on the circular kitchen. It's very surreal. <laughs> and I say to my granny... Granny, that's Jim Carrey. Do you know what? And she says, that is not Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey is chubby and has glasses like that. So she had mistaken Jim Carrey for Drew Carey. (laughs) 
And um, I realized that afterwards, the lackluster future host of Granny's favorite TV show, The Price is Right. Thankfully, Granny and I had come to see The Price is Right with Bob Barker. You see, a year earlier at the cottage, my Granny had told me it was her life dream to go see The Price is Right. But she didn't think she would ever get back to Hollywood again uh, now that my grandpa had passed away. Uh, going to The Price is Right was my Granny's life dream. And hearing this, I proclaimed with confidence... Granny, we can make that happen. And so there we were in L.A. to see The Price is Right with Bob Barker, to take in the sights of Hollywood with my friend Kristen, future wife, and to experience a real Hollywood party thrown by my old friend Alanis, now one of the biggest recording artists of all time. And we got to the kitchen, and there was Alanis, and we had a nice reunion. We exchanged hugs and kisses, and I gave her my gifts, and she immediately ripped open the package of cookies and devoured one. And I was happy about this because my friend future wife, Kristen, had erroneously suggested I not bring the cookies. She said, don't bring the cookies. You don't need to bring cookies to a party like this. And she also said that I didn't need to bring the wine, that the party would be catered. I said, I don't care if it's being catered. When I go to a party, any party, Alanis's party, any party, I want to bring something. And this time, it's a bottle of wine and a package of these chocolate chip gourmet cookies. And she said, fine, just don't bring that. And she was referring, of course, to the manila envelope that I had still brought and that was sitting on the vestibule by the front door waiting to discover its fate, the envelope I had brought despite her advice. So Alanis and I had been kid actors on a comedy show called You Can't Do That on Television, produced out of Ottawa, where we grew up. This was... Uh... Yeah, I love it or hate it. It's one of those things, yeah. This was a show that was no big deal in Canada, uh, but in the States it was watched by 4 million kids a day, uh, so to my friends, I was acting out at like dumb sketches on a silly local kids show working at what might as well have been a summer drama camp when in reality, the show is so popular south of the border. Like we were invited to the annual Easter egg roll in the White House. Like it was just a huge thing, but none of my friends cared. They thought it was, I might as well have been doing a paper route. So Alanis and I, like many of the castmates, bonded because we shared this very unique experience at an important time in our lives and we'd kept in touch through uh, over the number of years. And so while Alanis and I caught up, Kristen graciously enter entertained my granny, and I think she had fallen in love with my granny and had gone above and beyond as a friend to make this trip really special for her and for us. And eventually, um, while Alanis and I played foosball together, Kristen offered to take granny back to the hotel so I could hang out longer. Hanging out some more with Alanis, it was easy to see that despite the massive fame that she had experienced since Jagged Little Pill, she was the same person I had always known. She was confident, funny, highly intelligent. I remember the first time I heard Alanis's music, we were between scenes on You Can't Do That on Television, and she played me a demo of what she'd been working on. So I thought, oh, okay, she's going to sing a song. She's got a cassette tape, and she puts it in. And it was just, like, amazing. And she was probably, I, th I think she was 12 at the time. And, uh, you know, it was produced, and it was studio mixed, and she had a band, you know. And I also remember thinking um, that she was singing about things I knew nothing about. I distinctly remember feeling younger than Alanis in that moment, even though she was younger than me in age. Because as I recall, the song she played was about love, about relationships, maybe even a breakup. I know that sounds crazy, but they were teenage concepts for sure. <clears throat> they were bigger than anything I knew about or had experienced in my sheltered suburban upbringing. So anyway, around midnight, I felt it was time for me to leave. So I said goodbye to Alanis, went to the door, and as I stood at the threshold of her house... I saw the envelope 
So I picked it up, and I thought about it, its contents. And I thought, would I walk out the door with it or leave it behind? The contents I knew felt, it was awkward. Um, so this is the backstory of that. Before I went to L.A., my budding photographer girlfriend had asked me if I could take some of her work to show Alanis. And it wasn't a healthy relationship. <laughs> but obviously in this moment, I had certain loyalties to her. And the more I tried to back out of it, the more my girlfriend accused me of not supporting her and not believing her in her. And, you know, I can clearly see now that the answer to her quest should have just simply been, no, that's awkward. Or alternatively, I could have said, yes, sure thing, and then just not given them to Alanis. Like, it was a very simple solution, but something compelled me to bring them. Um, but what made the pictures and the act of giving them truly awkward was one of the photographs in particular. It was a shirtless photo of my friend Glenn. Now, when Alanis first came to Toronto, pre-Jagged Little Pill, she had tracked me down and we started hanging out and I felt we were beginning to connect actually in a way that was really exciting. And, and obviously I thought she was great, but I was, I was dating another woman at the time who I was afraid to break up with. This was a pattern in my young life. <laughs> and um, so I invited my friend Glenn, who had also known Alanis, Alanis from Ottawa Days, out to a movie with us. And as the song suggests, they fell head over feet for each other. Uh, now that song, in fact, apparently was inspired by my friend Glenn. And it wasn't a long relationship, but from what I could see, it was a very meaningful relationship. And they broke up right before she moved to LA and uh, about a year before Jagged Little Pill was released. So now at this point, Glenn and Alanis had not been together for about eight years. So this wasn't something fresh, and I considered all of us to be part of that Ottawa sort of tribe of friends. The fact that they had dated was secondary, really, to that. So I didn't see his appearance in my girlfriend's pictures to be that weird, or at least that's how I justified it. But at the end of the day, it's still incredibly awkward. Random pictures in an envelope, one of which is, is a shirtless picture of her ex-boyfriend. It's, it's really insane <laughs> that I was actually considering this. And while I stood at the door, a friend of Alanis's and someone I knew from Toronto as well approached me, and without thinking, I just handed them to her. When I said, these are my girlfriend's pictures, she's a budding photographer, and she asked me if I could share them with Alanis. It's awkward, I know, would you mind giving them to her later? And then I left the party, and instantly I regretted, as soon as I left the party, I regretted leaving them there with her. So anyway, I never heard from Alanis after that. I tried connecting with her once to explain the situation, knowing she probably didn't get the right message, knowing probably she thought it was awkward and weird. I mean, obviously she did. Uh, but I never heard back from her, and I didn't keep trying. I was embarrassed, essentially, and felt shameful about the whole thing. And over the years, I've asked myself many times, what was I thinking? Why did I bring the envelope? Why did I feel compelled to follow my girlfriend's instructions? So... Just like the song Head Over Feet about a friendship turned romance, my best friend Kristen did become my wife. And she said something brilliant to me the other day. As I tried to decode this, she said, the forgiveness that I needed to invite was not for what I did. I need to forgive myself for beating myself up for it over many years, over something that relatively trivial, yes, an awkward mistake. But that, the act of beating myself up over something like this over years, that's what needed the forgiveness. So I'll try that. I think that is 
Good advice that I probably can't take. Um, the postscript here is my granny also had an awkward moment that night. While Kristen was driving her back at the hotel to the hotel, granny leaned over and, sa- and thanked Kristen for all that she had done. And then she said, you know, I think you and Adam would make a lovely couple. And Kristen thought this was sweet, of course, but then reminded granny that she was married and that her husband was in the car with them. <laughs> in the back seat, proving sometimes something positive can be planted by the seed of an awkward moment. I don't want to be the filler if the void is solely yours. I don't want to be your glass of single malt whiskey hidden in the bottom drawer. I don't want to be a bandage if the wound is not To know Jagged Little Pill doesn't mean you have to like it. When an album like this is so big, what happens when you can't escape it? Justina Kroll hated the album growing up, and in our final story today, we find out why. So, um, my relationship with Alanis was a little bit less straightforward, by which I mean that the first time I heard Jagged Little Pill, I hated it. Alanis really annoyed me, which is not that unusual. A lot of things annoy me. It's sort of my thing. But um, she made enough of an impression that I actually made a list. So um, I wrote this list 20 years ago now, and it only has four items on it. So here it is. What is wrong with Alanis Morissette? Number one, so she is screechy. Number two, she is nasal, and she doesn't seem to feel bad about it. Um, Number three, she's really melodramatic. And I say this as somebody who loves Polish cabaret ballads. (laughs) And finally, she sounds genuinely upset. This really bothered me. (laughs) Now, at the time that the album came out, I was in my last year of undergrad, and I had no idea what I was doing. And I felt terrible about this, so I wasn't talking about it to anybody. I was coping with the stress by smoking a lot of cigarettes, reading poetry, and criticizing pop culture. I remember this one night, um, we went to a party with my friends, and Alanis, of course, came on the radio. And I remember referring to her song, One Hand in My Pocket, as that ambidextrous anthem. (laughs) And I got laughs then, too. Like, not a lot of laughs, but some laughs. And I felt great (laughs) because it meant that I had done something well. And that was all I wanted. I wanted to feel like I could do something well. Uh, The problem with having that wish is that you have to be ready to do something badly. And that was a thing that I couldn't face. So I think I did what a lot of people do in my situation, which is to uh, go ahead and do something badly, but just make sure it's something that you don't care about and that you can be guaranteed to suck at. And in my case, that was waiting tables. (laughs) I had always been a clumsy child, and as I grew up, I had also added being terribly absent-minded to my repertoire. So I was in for a really great time. Despite these handicaps, I had gotten a job at a restaurant that had these upscale aspirations, and uh, it was owned by this chef who had this ruddy Anglo-Saxon complexion, and he sort of had the charm of a riled-up Mel Gibson. 
<laughs> and I still think of him as Mel, actually. So most of the time I was doing my best to avoid him, especially since that time when I was serving beers and I had um, put all of them on the outside of the tray. And then I started removing them one by one. So anyways, most of the time I was doing okay. I managed to avoid him and I probably would have kept waiting tables a lot longer except for Alanis. What happened was, is there was a really busy night and everybody was working. There was an engagement party. And I, being the youngest waitress, was stuck late cleaning up. Mel was sitting at a table and talking to a friend of his, and he asked me to bring him a beer. And it was this beer that he had gotten at some microbrewery, and I was trying very hard not to forget the name of it. So I was concentrating, and he said, go to the back fridge. I went to the back fridge. I got the beer. I poured it out. Everything went well. I breathed a huge sigh of relief and walked away, and I could hear Alana singing, asking if she was stressing me out, and I was thinking, no, you're not my problem. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a few seconds later, Mel got up, and he called me over to the kitchen. So I walk over, and he's holding his beer, and he asked me, what is this? And I say, it's a beer. There's an uncomfortable pause. Then he says, and where did you get that beer? And I said, from the back fridge, like you asked. Now there's a longer pause. And then he says, no, you got it from the front of the back fridge. That's where we keep the beer that's just been delivered. You need to get beer from the back of the back fridge, where the beer has had a chance to reach its proper temperature. And then he takes the bottle and he throws it right at me. Not exactly right at me, because he misses and it crashes to the back wall of the kitchen. It makes a loud noise, and I think at that point he sort of comes to his senses and just leaves. So I'm left standing there, and Alanis is still singing. And she's saying, and all I really want is some patience, a way to calm the angry voice, and all I really want is deliverance. And I hate the sound of her voice. <laughs> I hate that croak. I hate the break at the end of that line. I really hate everything. <laughs> and I take off my apron and I fold it very neatly on the kitchen counter and I go to the back and I grab my bag. I walk out to see the manager who's standing near the front desk. And I go up to her and I say, I quit. And she says, yeah. And I went home and I went in to get Alanis' CD from my roommate's pile and I put it on and I heard her sing and screech and yell and cry. And I thought, she is too melodramatic and she is such a girl and she is all I want to hear right now. And later that night, I went ahead, and with one hand in my pocket, I smoked a cigarette, and it was the best fucking cigarette of my life. <laughs> Thank you. And that's Record Club for this week. 
Record Club will be releasing new episodes for the next six weeks. We'll cover classic albums like Radiohead's OK Computer. You think you get Radiohead, but, but I get Radiohead. Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. The greatest breakup album of all time. <laughs> but next week, we'll talk about an album from a pioneer of the new Jack Swing. It's an album that inspired women to take charge of their own destiny and showed the music industry that the youngest Jackson was a musical force to be reckoned with. So a couple girlfriends and I got together and we decided we would dance to Janet Jackson's Nasty Boys. Your record next week is Control by Janet Jackson. Record Club is a Kelly and Kelly production. It is produced by Chris Kelly, Max Collins, Lauren Berkovich, Dave Shumka, and Jody Camilleri. Record Club was created by Lizzie Carp and Ken Soy and recorded at a Here There event. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. Spread the word about it and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Louise Burns. Thanks for listening. 